to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Today on Everyday Theology, I have the pleasure to have a good friend of mine who I've been friends with for about 15 years. His name is Anthony Roberts, who's going to have a great conversation with us on a really interesting topic. So thanks so much, Anthony, for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Hey, so Anthony, uh, you know, you're a PhD student. You and I are both in the throes right now, finishing up at Illiff School of Theology, doing a PhD in religious and theological studies. And I... I'm impressed by you always, you know, you got much more scholarship funds than I got for doing a PhD, (laughs) which already means you're better than me. And I get it. I know. Um, (laughs) um, If you wouldn't mind, you know, telling our listeners a little bit about you, your story and what you're actually studying for your PhD. Yeah. So Aaron, thanks, you know, for having me. And um, so I am a assistant professor of Christian theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. I also serve as the chair of the Department of Ministry and Theology in the College of Unrestricted Education, which oversees our 150 extension sites and our online students. In addition to the work that I do as a professor, I am also a PhD student, as you mentioned, at both the University of Denver and the Iowa School of Theology. And I am uh, concluding my sixth year here as I'm in the dissertation phase. And I am working on developing a constructive theology of human difference. And I'm doing that in conversation with black theology, which I think is just a, a really important development in Christian theological studies in the past 100 years. In addition to the work that I do in the academy, I'm also a ordained bishop in the Church of God, Cleveland. Prior to coming out to Denver, I had served as an associate pastor at a few different churches. And uh, that's just that's just a little bit about me. I have a wife and a 13-year-old daughter, and we love being out here in the Rocky Mountain region. Basically, what you're saying is you like to punish yourself by doing too much. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do. I'm trying to keep up with all of it. <laughs> uh, man, you know, I, I'm always like hesitant. I'm like, I just want to tell some stories of us in college <laughs> and we could go down a really weird path of, yep. you know, you and I, we did like kind of worship stuff together for a long time. Um we both kind of grew up in that, uh, the same college. I mean, beyond Southeastern, we both were religion majors. Uh, we, we've had a long time, a long history together and a lot of good conversations along the way. And, you know, one of the things that always struck me is that our conversations were always kind of full of grace, even when we disagreed with each other. Mm-hmm. I don't remember any time I've done this with a lot of people, but with you, I don't remember really any time we ever raised our voices at each other, right? Like we probably just sat back and we're like, okay, cool. (laughs) And one of the things that I've been so thankful for you, Anthony, is this voice of helping me understand better black theology, African-American theology and the differences. And, and like you're talking about with your PhD is, is a, a idea of difference within people. And 
that's something that I don't think I would have ever gotten without being in conversation with you, uh, a deep conversation with you. And so what I would love for you to do, if you wouldn't mind for our listeners, is maybe help our listeners understand when we say something like black theology, what is it? And what makes theology black versus maybe white or not black? And why do we use that kind of language and what can it help help us with today? Yeah, Aaron, that's a great question. Let me let me step back a little bit and just and just think about things in this way. So, a- African Americans have been thinking about God since the time we stepped on the North American continent in 1619, when the first African slave uh, arrived here in in the so-called New World, and so. Um, even though black theology as a discipline has its roots in the late 1960s, I want to be clear, African-Americans have been thinking about God and what that means for them in their place in the world for, you know, really four, four or 500 years at this point here in the United States. So, um, so African-Americans have been thinking about God um, since they, since they arrived here, they've been thinking about the meaning of the biblical narrative um, sometimes when we look at things like um, poems and folk tales and music that came out of different slave communities uh, prior to the Civil War, we find very deep theological things being said. When we look at some of the abolitionist writings that were produced uh, as slavery was coming to an end, we often find a particular articulation of God that attempts to identify where where Jesus is in the midst of this struggle for freedom in the fight against racism and racial violence. So in, in the 1960s, um, we find ourselves in an interesting transition point uh, between the civil rights movement, the nonviolent civil rights movement, particularly led by Dr. Martin Luther King and other Christian leaders. And uh, we find the rise of the radical... Uh, black power movements. So uh, black power in in the shape of Stokely Carmichael and Charles V. Hamilton, uh, who have a bit more of a more of a um, militant view on what it will take in order for African-Americans to find freedom in the United States. So out of that intellectual tension between the nonviolent civil rights movement and the more radical black power movements, uh, you have the rise of black theology. So black theology starts um, through the work of the National Committee of Negro Churchmen, which was an outgrowth of the African-American caucus in the National Council of Churches, and the work of James H. Cohn, who was a longtime theologian at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Those two, those two uh, intellectual voices are uh, began to think about what does it mean for African Americans to be seeking their freedom in this moment, and what does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say to that? Uh, and so, out of that question arises Black theology. It is attempting to understand what it, what relevance the Christian gospel has to the African American struggle struggle for liberation and freedom and full flourishing in the context of what at at that point was a very racially violent, divided, uh, society. Um, now, which, which if we, if we think about that for a second, I mean, that's just the theological activity to begin with. 
you know, asking who is Jesus or like what I, I always kind of think of you know, Moltmann's book when I think of this phrase, but who is Jesus Christ for today's world? Right. It's, exactly. it's the same kind of theological questioning or, or enterprise that oftentimes, and, and it will, I'm sure we'll get there somehow seems to be combated against, uh, by the norm of theology. Yes. And, and I think that in some ways we can look at black theology as an attempt to be a bit more honest about the context and the, the space that we're speaking out of when we think about God and the fact that our context and who we are deeply shapes what we're going to say about God. So yeah. in this respect, black theology is, is really one of the first ways of thinking about God that says that our difference matters when we are talking about God and we need to be more honest about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's, it can be really frustrating when we try to assume, and I think a lot of people do this with theology is that we, we assume that we're doing theology in a very, uh, objective way as in theology is something to be studied that if we all did it properly, if we all did it well, we would all come at it the same exact way. As if we could divorce our life from it, we could divorce our surroundings, we could divorce our our ethnicity or our race, and uh, that we can just divorce all these things and just think the right things. And one of the things that's been very helpful, even for me to study in, in terms of studying black theology, is a deeper understanding of just that difference, just that reality of the theology that I've grown up with has predominantly been a theology, as as people often kind of use this kind of phrase, of white men. Yeah, and, and I think that the reality is when we look closely enough, that theology has been deeply shaped by its context, right? Um, you know? Uh, right, which right. Is why, which is why an African-American Christian and someone who's a Hispanic Christian and someone who maybe is is experiencing dis- disability in a certain way, their, their different experiences of life necessarily are going to shape what they have to say about God in different ways, and, and it's and it's in some ways black theology destabilizes this idea that as long as we approach theology in a certain way, we'll all end up saying the exact same thing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and I think that's the biggest thing that is a struggle for a lot of people. A lot of well, I say a lot of people. A lot of white people in America is that it challenges that nor that like. There's this presupposition almost that the way that theology has been done, and it really, if we talk about a little bit post-Reformation, if we talk about, you know, the past maybe couple hundred years, and really in America, it's really just the past hundred years that our our theology has been really influenced by the evangelical movement, um, that we just assume that that has always been the proper way of doing theology, Right, right. And and I think that it's important for us to understand that there are other ways of doing theology. It's, you know, um, not everyone is doing systematic theology in the way that it's taught in the seminary or in the academy. 
there are other ways of speaking about God that may take the shape of a song. Um, I would argue that the spirituals within the African-American cultures are deeply theological. Um, yeah. they, don't, they don't look like a textbook on systematic theology. Right, right. You know, I would argue that some of the uh, ways that art and um, you know creativity are expressed within indigenous theologies those are deeply theological, although you're not going to find those expressed in a textbook necessarily. And so in some ways, I think that black theology, along with contextual theologies in general, allow us to round out the ways in which people are thinking about God in a bit more broad way. So so this sounds great, right? Because we would hope that we want that, right? Like we, we hope that when people are thinking theologically, we, we want to round it out. We want to engage in it in hopefully more fuller ways, right? And the idea of theology really often is given this, this definition of faith-seeking understanding. You know, that the more round our theology, the better that we do theology, the more understanding we may have. So... Help help our listeners then understand why is it that that you know I was just in a I shouldn't do this because it's Facebook and it's you know Facebook, but I was just in a in a Facebook like group uh, that I got put into some time ago, and it is a denominational group, and someone just kind of went into that group and they were just like uh, they basically were we're bashing James Cone and calling him a heretic and basically saying, I can't believe anyone would ever think that this is, this has no place in our denomination. This has no place in the church, so on and so forth. Why are there so many people that are so resistant to a James Cone particular who you're studying? And maybe if you can give us a little bit of a, a, an idea of how James Cone shaped black theology. Um, but then B the kind of black theological enterprise, in, in total, like why are people, why do we hear so much kind of pushback against it as, as we do when we are studying it or yeah. talking about it? Yeah, I think that people have a visceral reaction to James Cone for a number of reasons. Um, one significant reason why I think people have a visceral reaction to James Cone and his work is in certain ways he – he he has no problem being honest that we may have to meet power with power. Um, James Cone, one of the more controversial pieces of his work um, is that he's honest that um, the fight against racial violence in the United States um, may be best fought uh, by really taking power rather than just waiting around for people to change uh, we may have to go instantiate change in very abrupt ways um, through revolution. Um, James Cone is a liberation theologian, uh, which means um, he's not interested in sitting around and waiting for change to happen. He is interested in making change happen. Uh, so I think that that is one thing that people struggle with, is that James Cone has somewhat of a revolutionary tone towards him. And this is him... Uh, in some ways, embodying and trying to make sense of the black power ideas that were at play in the late 60s, early 70s. He, he's attempting to make sense of these for uh, for Christians. I think the second thing that causes people to have a visceral reaction to James Cone is that he very clearly in his work says that God, 
God chooses those who are oppressed. He assides with those who are experiencing oppression in their fight against the oppressor. Um, and so I think that for some people, it's a really radical idea to hear about God taking sides. Um, right. Yeah. That God is not somehow neutral um, in the face of injustice. But and I, I bet those same people would read the Old Testament and go, go, yeah, God is always sticking up for the people of Israel. Right. God is exactly. God is always sticking up for the people of Israel. But even in, you know, the ministry of Jesus and in the Gospels, we always see Jesus siding with those who are found at the margins of society. And we see Jesus critiquing in very strong ways the different power structures that are at play um, in his context, which are often, you know, the, the Roman colonizers uh, or the religious establishment. We see Jesus critiquing those. Um, yeah. and by the way, that does not create a very favorable response. For <laughs> um, that, that creates a lot of conflict. So yeah. I think those, those, those two things are why people have such a visceral reaction to James Cone. Now I say that, and I want to be very clear, James Cone is one person in black theology, right? He may be the, the seminal intellectual leader and whatnot, but there are lots of different black theologies that go in different directions that, that aren't necessarily um, completely indicative of where Cone ends. Uh, there are people who talk much more about reconciliation and the creation of a new society. Um, and, and so I think that that is important to recognize. Cone, Cone's work is very indicative of someone who is riding in the heat of the racial violence of the late 1960s and 1970s. Yeah. Um, and so it, it can be a bit jarring for, for those of us who are living now to read something like that. But there are others who do do deal more with the reconciliation question. Um, so, so maybe give maybe if we can take a step back here, maybe give our listeners like, I, and I, tenants are never a great thing. But if you had to like kind of pick, like, what are like some of the central tenants to what black theology is, and why it may be different than you know what is predominantly white theology or systematic theology. And you mentioned liberation, and maybe we need to expound on that a little bit. But what are some of the central tenets of what we could call a black theology? Yeah, so very generally, um, maybe I'll give three three main tenets. I think one major tenet of black theology is is this idea that God is is very present in the in the struggle for African-Americans as they are seeking out their liberation, uh, their freedom. Um, this is a big thing for particularly James Cone and those who are in his same vein. Um, they want to locate God in the freedom struggle. They want to locate God um, in the sit-ins, in the freedom rides, uh, in the protest, in the marches. Um, they would argue that the spirit of God is with them as they are doing these things. So I think that that is one major tenet of black theology, this idea that God is with the oppressed as they struggle. The second thing that I would say is a major ten, you know, um, tenet of black theology is this idea that if we read the biblical narrative, God is always about the business of setting people who are oppressed free. Um, you know, if we look at the Exodus narrative, God 
deals with the political powers there in Egypt to set the Israelites free. Um, if we look at Jesus's ministry, um, he, in the beginning of his public ministry, makes it very clear that he's there to set the captives free, that he is there to bring sight to the blind and heal the sick. Uh, and so, you know, another big tenet of black theology is this idea that when we look at the biblical narrative, it is impossible to ignore the fact that God is always about the business of setting people free and really addressing the structures and the systems that cause people to not experience freedom. But when you say setting people free, Anthony, don't you mean setting their soul free and they get to go to heaven? Well, no. Isn't that the, isn't that the major thing? <laughs> no. <and that's> <laughs> Clearly that was a bit of a joke. I just you know, wanted to make sure that was relayed. No, that's good. And I think that that is possibly an area of distinction between black theology and what we might call Protestant evangelical theology is this idea that God is not coming to simply set souls free. God is, God is literally setting our bodies free, who we are in the world. God is not just saving our soul. God is redeeming us uh, in our current situation. Yeah. So for black theologians, especially when we look back at, you know, the slave narratives and the, the situation of African-American slaves, salvation for them at that point is not just a matter of the soul, though that's important. It's also a matter of them being set free from the chains of bondage in a very literal way. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I would say that that is another distinguishing factor. The, the, the third thing that I would say is a tenet of black theology is that African-American culture provides us with lots of resources for thinking about God that, that go beyond, you know, books and the, the way that we might do theology in the academy. And so one of the things that people like James Cone and Dwight Hopkins do is they look to things like jazz and the blues and African-American dance and humor um, all these different things. They look at black preaching. They look at black gospel, all, all these different elements of African-American cultures, and they use those as resources for thinking about God. So, I, and I think that that's a very important move is that black theology is saying, hey, in addition to these resources that you might find in the academy, whether those are books or, you know, things that have been written about theology, there, there are these things embedded in our culture that help us talk about God in a way that is very particular to our experience in the world. Which, which, you know, it's, it's, I, I can think of trying to formulate this thought here. I can think of like every time that, you know, I've taught theology or anytime that I hear, I hear people talk about theology in academic setting, a lot of people in, in evangelical Protestant Pentecostal traditions will often harken back to this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, right? Yep. Talk about scripture, reason, experience, and tradition as the four areas that all Christians kind of use in order to understand or at least process the idea of God and who God is for us. Right. And we talk about that experience thing, and that, you know, it's very much similar to what you were just saying. But experience has always been almost the black sheep of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Yeah. Because if experience, if we if we use experience at all to process God, then then who's to say what experience is right? Who's to say what experience is wrong? Right. And 
predominantly, I think the dominant culture has been able to say whose experience is right. Right. By ignoring other cult, other experiences by saying, well, our experience says this is what God should, should be or who God is. So therefore, if your experience may be different, we don't have to listen. And, you know, predominantly, especially being a Pentecostal, I think that was a huge kind of reality between the experience of spirit baptism, you know, the charismatic gifts, speaking in tongues, healing versus other traditions that would say, well, that's not our experience. And therefore that must be wrong. Right. Right. And I think that, um, and, and this is something that I would argue that the second and third generation of black theologians do a better job of. I think sometimes people misread James Cone to say, that the only valid experience for doing theology out of is the black experience. I don't think that that's actually what he's saying. What I do think he is saying is that, you know, my, my experience actually does matter when it comes to doing theology, just as you, you know, maybe the dominant cultures experience has very much mattered. Um, I, I think when we're talking about Western European theology of, and that's what we mainly deal with here in the United States it would be wrong of us to ignore the influence of the Reformation and the Enlightenment and the World Wars on how that has shaped how we think about God here, right? Um, though we need to acknowledge those things are in the background. Um, I, I think, though, that it's important for us to recognize that by affirming, you know, my particular experience and talking about the way that my experience shapes how I think about God, the intent is not to negate um other experiences. I think that that is actually, that's no better than, you know, uh, you know, maybe what has existed before. Um, by affirming my experience as an African American, I'm not intending to negate, you know, Aaron, your, your experience as someone whose family owns a castle in England, right? Um, so, oh, gosh. <laughs> a long time ago, my family, and not any longer. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a beautiful part of your ethnic journey that that has probably helped shape who you are and shape what you think about God. Um, yeah. And, and I think at the end of the day, the good, a good approach to the Wesleyan quadrilateral means that we start in the scriptures and we end in the scriptures. Um Experience, I would argue, does not necessarily end up becoming all that we do with our theology. I think a good Wesleyan approach to theology means that as we are trying to understand how our experiences shape what we think about God, we're constantly going back to the scriptures and rooting ourselves in God's word. Right. Which, which of course, brings us down another another little bit of a rabbit trail whose scriptures right or or who's reading and that's why i think what you're saying is is really important that we recognize that when we when we talk about cuz i can hear people you know in 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 discussions i've had about these kind of topics in the past people will say something like well you know scripture you know clearly or plainly says this or that and what they really mean by that is, according to my reading of scripture, and maybe the research that I've done in the few places that I have, scripture must say X, Y, and Z. And so therefore, your experience can be negated because it doesn't line up with my reading of scripture. And I don't think that's what you're saying, Anthony. So maybe help kind of expound that for us a little bit. Right. This is where I think living in community and doing theology in community is extremely important. Um, 
you know, I think at the end of the day, we, we need to realize that our experiences are important, but we also need to be careful about holding those so tightly that we're not able to hear what, what others are saying uh, and what their experiences are. Right. Um, exactly. And, and so Aaron, I think, um, I think that we do need to recognize and, and even the Bible itself is very clear about this. Um, you know, in our humanity, we don't always get everything right. Right. Um, so theology is not no, no, I'm perfect. Right. I thought, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that theology has to be nimble enough that it's responsive to new things that we learn about ourselves and about other others experiences in the world. Um, and that when we fail to do that, we're not having a theology that can be authentic and responsive to the world that God is calling us to live into. Um, so I hope that that begins to answer your question. I, I, I agree. Um, we have to hold our interpretations, you know, carefully recognizing that they are interpretations. Yeah, because it's, it's too easy, I think, for it's too easy for us to kind of rest on the idea of, you know, because I agree with you, you know, it starts and ends in scripture, right? But maybe the thing that we have to be really clear about is that when we say it starts and ends in scripture, we have to be careful that we don't say it starts and ends in my interpretation of scripture. Right, right. Because too often that's how people do it. It's it's my interpretation of scripture. It says this, not the community's interpretation, not being in community, having talking about experiences, talking about your experience, Anthony, as an African-American person in the United States and how you read scripture and interpret scripture in light of your experience helps me understand things about scripture that I would never have seen. Right. Because I've never experienced it. And, and we talk about that a little bit in terms of social location, right? I, mm-hmm. I know the, the easy one to kind of use in terms of social location is a discussion on um, uh, the, the prodigal son. There it is. Whew, finally came back to me. <laughs> Where different groups of people will often peg the, the problem of the, the son being hungry based on their location. So... For many Americans, they'll say he was poor. He he spent his money poorly, and he squandered his inheritance, and he you know he did a lot of bad, dirty sins. But other groups of people, and especially uh, in in Africa, I found this even when I was teaching in Africa a few years back in Tanzania. They actually pointed out the problem was the famine, right? And in that same scripture, it says a great famine arose. That me as an American, I never thought for a second that there was anything else going on in the story other than the prodigal son being a bad steward of his money and being sinful. Yeah. And and I think what you're saying there and, and kind of what we're discussing here is this idea when we talk about scripture, we have to be really careful to actually listen to the experiences of others mm-hmm. as a lens by which to understand scripture in different ways that we may be too limited to ever hear or understand because we've never experienced it. Right. And, and I would add 
we're not wrong for not having those experiences that we've never had. Right. Yeah. Um, there, there's nothing, for example, you know, there's nothing wrong with me not understanding the perspective of, you know, let's say someone who grew up, um, you know, on a native American reservation, um, and some of the things that she has experienced, I'm not wrong for not having those experiences. It becomes problematic when I refuse to listen to those experiences or understand how those experiences may form her reading of a passage that I'm reading very differently. Right. Um, yeah. And- Sorry. I didn't have anything oh, there. No, no, no. I was just listening. Yeah. So no, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, um, I, I think at the end of the day, part of what black, not only black theology, but other contextualized theologies are attempting to do is bring other voices to the table as we're thinking about God. And, and the reality is, Christianity is by its nature a faith that is communal in nature. And if yeah. I, I would argue that our theology is better for listening to experiences that we have not had. If these are truly brothers and sisters in the Lord, then their experiences should matter. What How they've experienced yeah. God should matter. Um, and so I, I would argue that by listening to these other experiences that maybe in some ways are radically different than our own, our theology becomes more rich by doing that. Right. And, and just as my theology has been more rich by like being made more rich by the time that I've spent studying at, you know, university levels and, 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 you know, degrees and all of that, it's been even more enriched, I think, often by the conversations that I get to have. Reading a book is like having a conversation. Reading a journal article is like having a conversation. But sitting down with you, Anthony, is a conversation of, of friendship, of community, where I'm actually not just listening, but I'm dialoguing and I'm able to actually kind of ask those questions when they don't make sense to me. Right. And- and I think that's where, you know, not to get off on a tangent, but, you know, the, the Facebook and Twitter and, and, and social media arguments and things that happen, they happen in these kind of insular, you know, bubbles where people are able to just find people that agree with them. And they're never challenged in the fact that their theology, the way that they're processing who they are in light of God and what God wants for the world has singularly been made by their own desire. Uh, and maybe singular is a bit much there to say, but predominantly made by the desire of what they want rather than what, uh, what God is speaking to the community. Yeah. yeah. And so if I can ask you, Anthony, what are some things that you've seen in terms of kind of you've done, you've done study in predominantly white uh, universities, Mm-hmm. I mean, most universities are predominantly white anyways, but under predominantly white, you know, uh, theologians mm-hmm. and biblical scholars, and yet you're doing your theology, your, your PhD, sorry, on, you know, this kind of issue of difference and using James Cone and using kind of black theology to help you process that. And you being an African-American yourself, help us understand maybe what are some, some areas that quote unquote, white, evangelical, whatever label we want to put on it, the predominant theology, 
what are some things that we need to hear and listen to better from black theology that we've been missing? So, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and, you know, like you said, Aaron, my formation as a theologian has been in predominantly white institutions. Um, and to a great extent, the churches that I have pastored in have for the most part been predominantly white. Um, I think that one of the things that I believe that evangelical, let's say evangelical theology can benefit from hearing from black theology is that we really need to understand that the freedom that God brings is not simply a spiritual freedom. It indeed salvation is about our soul. And I, and I truly do believe in the idea that transformation comes to our soul. But I also think that black theology gives us a moment to pause and think about how does that salvation trickle down into the total experience that we have in life? Does that, does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, in, in the Pentecostal world, we also often talk about deliverance from drug addictions or uh, habits that are not healthy, or even at times uh, from demonic forces. I think that we need to understand, and this is something that black theology gets at, is that the deliverance and victory that God gives us is not merely in our souls. It, it is also in our daily interactions, in our existence in the world. Um, and so I, I think that in some ways, black theology forces us to recognize that salvation is not just about the soul. It's about our total person. And that brings me great joy. Um, when Jesus was setting people free and doing his ministry, yes, he was dealing with their souls, but he was also doing things like healing them and giving them sight. Um, he was doing things like going in uh, to, to the temple and cle clearing it out, getting rid of the problematic things that were happening in God's house. And so I think that that, that is something that black theology contributes. I, I think and, this and it's definitely something that growing up, I never heard. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I never heard an idea that, that the, that, that salvation was more than I, I would hear things like, well, salvation, you know, is a relationship with Jesus. And I would hear that, but often what that really meant was, well, if you want to go to heaven, you just need to be saved. Mm -hmm. And there's an other extreme in Pentecostalism that I grew up in that, you know, was, well, God wants you to be rich. And that was a whole other issue, I yep. think. And, and we'll hopefully have a podcast on, on, uh, prosperity gospel messages and kind of where they went awry. But I never really heard that salvation actually meant liberation from, from what I was going through. Maybe the, the most I ever heard was healing, uh, that, that God wants us to be healed, but it wasn't really a liberation of the body of, of oppression. And partially because being white, I don't know if I felt those things. Um, I, I probably didn't feel those things. Right. So if you can kind of give some areas, what areas would you say that that kind of like liberation of the whole person do you see as something that we need to kind of focus more on? Yeah. Uh, and so I think specifically within black theology, one of the areas of liberation that, that they, that they are looking at is 
the ways in which we deal with difference, um, the way in which we're dealing with our, you know, with African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans and white Americans. I think that in one area of liberation that black theology says we need help with and we need healing in uh, are the dynamics between different racial groups. Um, and so I think that that is one area that, you know, certainly James Cohn and others speak to is that we, we need deliverance when it comes to the way in which race has played out in our country. A lot of it is not good. Um, I would say another area that, that I think liberation specifically speaks to is uh, dealing with the way in which our society is structured. You know, um, I, I think at, you know, again, because black theology focuses on very tangible ideas in which salvation plays out, um, I think that black theology says we need to open our eyes and realize how um, our institutions, our systems and whatnot may in some ways, in, you, know, um, you know, embody injustice. So how are we dealing with those things? Um, and, and so, the, those, and I would also add that in some ways, black theology also challenges us to think about how racial division and brokenness has played out in the church. That's probably another thing that James Cone does that a lot of people have a visceral reaction to is he calls out racism as it exists within the church. He, he, he does call it out within the society, but he also looks at how racism is alive and well in our church structures. So, you know, as we are ministry leaders and whatnot, I think we need to be attentive to the way in which, unfortunately, racism often plays out within our church structures. Yeah, I think that's really good. How does racism affect our church structures? I think is a great question. And maybe you can actually speak to that because I'm also thinking about, and, and this can get us into a weird space and maybe I shouldn't go there, but you know, it's what I do. So I'm going to go there, but places where we actually see spiritual oppression in the church rather than spiritual freedom or oppression. You know, I think of past church history, legalistic oppression by the church yeah. or even spiritual oppression of people who use gods to demand things of other people. Um, but I want to stick with that systemic kind of racism issue within the church. What kind of, if you can kind of expound on that, what do you mean by that in terms of the oppression that we see in the church and what is a way that we need to move forward? Yeah. So I think that one way that black theologians often look at racism within the church is that when we look at the history of race in the United States, often the church has not necessarily been on the best side of history. Um, we know that during the desegregation era in the 50s and 60s, sometimes the church was actually the one of the one of the many voices that was saying that segregation should not end. Um, and so I think that that that's a blatant example of where racism has existed in the church. But I would also argue that racism in the church occurs when when we look at who you know who gets to lead. Whose voices do we get to hear? You know, when we have people who are not of the majority racial group in our churches, but they're not getting the lead, we're not hearing their voices. They don't have influence in our in our power structures. 
at that point, I think we have a problem. I mean, that might be an, a, an example of systemic racism. And so I think the question we need to ask ourselves, and, and to me, this has been helpful in my own pastoral ministry, is who is here in, in my community that I am not hearing? Who is in my community that is not getting to lead? Who is being silenced? And I think that when we begin to answer that question and respond to that, that often gives us at least a starting place for thinking about, you know, in what ways can we become um, more open to more voices? How can we truly be that body of Christ that allows all people to, to come to the table and to have a voice in the community? Does, does that make sense? No, I think it makes great sense. I, and those are the kind of questions that I, I, in the churches that I've participated in, uh, in the churches that I've, I've engaged in churches that I've even worked in that those questions may be there, but they're always underlying questions, right? right? They're never the actual main questions. I, I, you know, the main questions that I would hear are always the questions such as how do we get more people saved? How do we get more people in the church? How do we get more people um, uh, serving or tithing. Like those are always kind of the main questions. And then every so often the, the, the other questions like you were talking about would come up like the question of who's in our community that hasn't been served right? or whose voice have, has been largely ignored. You know, I've, I've heard churches say things in well-meaning ways to say something like, well, we're just, we want to do a church service that's you know, for the most amount of people, or like we want to reach the most amount of people. And what that often does is that often leaves those on the margins out. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't look at those who aren't considered quote unquote, the most in America, right? right? And usually the most amount of people usually means somewhere between, you know, middle to upper middle class white people. Um, and not really other cultures or other, uh, you know, social locations or, or economic realities. So I think that's really good. I think those are the kind of things that we really should be engaging with. And I think, you know, in our conversations, again, it's why I've been so thankful for someone like you, Anthony, is that's helping me expound on a bunch of language that I've not had or ideas that I've never had to engage with because my experiences have never asked me to ask those questions. And, and I think this is one of the big reasons, Anthony, that, you know, what we've been seeing, especially at the time of this recording, even though this will be out a little bit after the recording of it, where people are starting to ask the question, where in our churches do we see people of color on leadership teams and boards? Mm-hmm. Why are our kind of major churches, most of our major churches, why is there very striking lack of people of color? Right. Whether in, not necessarily always in the church, but definitely on the leadership of the church. And how have we missed the voices of people who are suffering or oppressed when we don't have those people at the table telling us of the oppression or their suffering? Right. And, and this is where I think our theology has to shape our practice. Um, you know, we, we, we've got to look at, 
you know, how is our, how is our church community you know, a reflection of the body of Christ that is talked about in the New Testament? And the body of Christ is, in the New Testament, is a complex gathering of diverse people groups. I mean, we're, we're told that God is no respecter of persons. And some of, the, you know, some of what is happening in the New Testament with the way that God is bringing together not only shakes up the status quo, it shakes up the expectations we have for who God would have us in community with. Um, we're, you know, we're told that the, the Jewish Christians were shocked you know, after the, they they come to the conclusion that these Gentiles have the spirit of God, right? You know, and they're of the same right. spirit. And so, I, I think that we need to ask ourselves: you know, if we believe that these things are true, um, how is it that our church is a reflection of that? How are we embodying our theology? Um, and and I would argue, you know, as you mentioned. We have to look at who's pastoring us, uh, who are our elders, who are our deacons. Um, how are we building partnerships with church communities that maybe are not of the majority? And right. how are we serving our community together? Um, how is the church a reflection of, of what we see in the New Testament? Um, in that idea that God has a diverse community that he's bringing together. And maybe... Just maybe the church is not a place to be comfortable. Yep. That maybe, maybe there's a reality of if we go to our church because it's comfortable, we're not really engaging with church. Right. If we're not challenged, but also if we're not listening to voices that are actually discussing experiences that are different than ours and helping us process God in ways that we probably have not processed before, then what we're just doing is going to church to find ourselves uh, agreeing with what we already want to know. Right. And that doesn't help us change. That doesn't help us listen. That doesn't help us grow in God at all. That really just kind of helps us control our own reality in a weird way. And, and, and I love that, Anthony, I think, I think I, and I hope that we are in a space where our church is awakening to that reality with some of the protests that we've been seeing in our country in 2020 with, uh, calling out the racism that we've seen in 2020, uh, that's been there for a long time, but it seems different at least at, in this moment and it and hopefully that real change comes from it. But I, I think one of the ways that we can start with real change is actually listening to black theologians and actually engaging like the church, the church won't be able to change by listening to the same theology. We actually need to ask where have there been major uh, potholes and pitfalls within our theology that we've never heard of, or we've never had the language of because we've never actually asked or engaged with people that we need to engage with. Yeah. Yeah. So I ask this with that very thing in mind, uh, as we wrap up today, um, who should the church be listening to? If there are some books or recommendations that you can give that if someone who's listening to this podcast is like, well, I'd love to do that, but I just don't know where to go. Um, it's not really, you know, Google can help, but from you as an expert of that, Anthony, 
since you're doing your PhD in this kind of very field, who are the people that we should be listening to? What are some kind of books that you can offer? I know you've already actually offered me a couple books that I've already been engaging with, but what, what can you kind of help our, our listeners kind of engage with? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a few books that have been particularly inf- influential on my own work that I think are, are worth reading for, for people who are interested in doing some more research on this. Um, one is the, the Christian Imagination that was written by Willie James Jennings. Uh, came out a few years ago, was very well received. Uh, but he talks about how Christianity, um, particularly in the Western Hemisphere in the past 500 years, has in some ways had somewhat of a diseased social imagination. And so he looks at that theologically and how theology um, produced certain very unhealthy ways of being in community with the others. So he goes back to you know, what happened when Christians came to South America and encountered, um, you know, the indigenous people there. So uh, he also looks at how that played out when it came to slavery in the United States. And so uh, that that's one resource that I would look at uh, as well. The uh, other resource that people might be interested in looking at, and it's a short read, it's an easy read, um, is a book called The Death of Race. Building a New Christianity in a Racial World. It's by Brian Bantam, who uh, is a theologian at, um, I believe, Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. He was previously at uh, Seattle Pacific University. But that's a great short read about, you know, what race has done um, in in our culture and in our society um, and why our kind of embodied existence, who we are, our specific experiences really actually do matter. Um, and in some ways matter more even than, you know, the constraints that race might provide us. Finally, um, I, I think that there have been some great resources that are not necessarily written by theologians per se, but they deal with theological matters. Um, I think that Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison um, is a great accessible work on, you know, what it looks like to engage people who are racially different than you and do it in ways that are gracious um, and really a reflection of the community that Christ calls us to. So I think that those are some great resources that people can look at um, as they're wanting to explore this topic a bit more. Wonderful. Cause I'm going to pick up those too. I know, you know, we talked about, you know, a few other books that I'm already engaging with. And I know there are some other ones, um, I think maybe a James Cone book and, and I feel, you know, it's going to be a tough one, but I know, uh, is it the cross and the lynching tree? Did I get that name right? Yep. Is, is Cone's one of Cone's most popular level works. I think, uh, that may be able to help, uh, as well to some degree with this concept. Um, while my dog is barking, cause we're still in COVID restrictions. Yay. Uh, he's just, I, you know, it's that moment where someone just pulls up right in my office at the front of the house. So he's just going nuts. But while he's doing that and I mute myself, how can people engage with you any further? How can they, uh, see any of your work or kind of see what you're doing? Yeah, so people can engage with me. I'm more than willing to answer questions and host discussions. Uh, you know, if you um, 
if I'm local in the area, I'd love to uh, come give a talk, um, you know, in, in your, your context, whether that's a small group or, uh, you know, church service. I'm always available via email. Um, you can also, uh, uh, I guess, follow me on social media. Um, I am also the editor for NUMA, the journal of the Society for Pentecostal Studies. So I'm always posting different resources uh, that have recently come out that deal with Pentecostal studies, but often um, I'm posting about resources that also deal with racial difference and the intersection with theology. Uh, So that's another great way just to know about what I'm reading and uh, some of the stuff that I'm doing. Wonderful. And I think if you're reading it, I want to read it. Although some of it's going to be right over my head, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, Anthony, thank you so much for being with me today for this good discussion on how we can better think about our theology in light of difference. Uh, It's been a pleasure, man. I can't wait for you to come back around so we can actually hang out when we actually are allowed to again. Yeah, sounds good, man. All right. Well, thanks again, Anthony, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you.